Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, on to this month's event podcast. All right, we're going to get started. Grab some food, grab a beer, have a seat. This is um, after doing uh, Startup Grind for three and a half years now. It's... um, that's the thing that I say um, at every one. Um, so, um, I don't know, that seems like some sort of an accomplishment that should go on my LinkedIn profile and that people can search it like the guy before me was, was talking about um, around uh, segmenting LinkedIn people. So, how about, um, it is, you know, as part of doing Startup Grind, we, we pull off one event a month where we do this fireside chat thing with an entrepreneur or an investor um, and I know how hard it is to do even one event a month let alone trying to do a whole week uh, of events and schedule so um, if, you, if you're with the startup week organizing team um, would, you, would you like walk over here in front of the thing um, yeah that would be Mike and Christina I know and Sam yeah Sam you can come over too don't shake your head no um, and if there's anybody else here that's part of the organizing team or a volunteer, um, go over there with them. Um, Ashley's going to be doing, you know, like three fashion tracks tomorrow. Um, how about giving these guys a round of applause for the hard work they've put into this week? Thank you so much for all the time and effort this week. You guys are incredible people and you've done amazing work. Thank you. So you, now we're going to have you, um, everybody, you know, put down your food or your beer or whatever and, and go and find someone you don't know and, and ask them something that nobody, no, I hate doing that shit, so I don't do that. Um, just, stay, just stay where you are. Um, and Jeff and I are going to have a conversation for the next, you know, 40 or so minutes and we'll take questions too. Um, so we do have a, a startup grind tradition though that, when we welcome the, uh, uh, the interviewee, as it were, that we give them the best ovation that they've ever received anywhere. So this is Jeff Harper. He's the founder and CEO at Duet Health. Um, so let's give Jeff the best reception he's ever received anywhere in his entire life right now. That was awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, so thank you for coming and doing this. No, thank you. Appreciate thank it. Thank you for the, the big now suspense of what I can say. Yeah, it's, uh, it better be good because um, they just gave you the best reception of your life. Um, so Jeff is one of the most interesting people. Dan, Jeff, and I were just talking about this to follow on, on LinkedIn primarily um, because you will, post, you will post shit about anything and sort of your musings while traveling um, and meeting with clients, mostly about healthcare since you're in the healthcare space, uh, but also just about sort of business in general and why the airlines, you know, why their business model sucks and you know all sorts of stuff. Why do you do that? Are you just compelled to like share your opinions? Um, you, why do you think you do that? Well, I, I think part of it is I don't have a filter that other people should have. Um, and, and so, but, but I think a, a lot of it is I didn't used to be like that. And so, so I've kind of evolved over time, right? And so, so why have you become an angrier Jeff <laughs> over the years? That's for Dan. Um, you, you know, I think really what I've grown is a comfort level of having a dialogue and having, um, you know, and, and interesting conversations and trying to get more perspective. I always think I'm looking for interesting people to follow myself. And I'm not just looking for people on LinkedIn to just post random 
stuff about what they're selling. I, I like to know what they're thinking. I like to know what they're doing. And so I try to follow interesting people myself. And so I just want to reciprocate that and hopefully provide some kind of value that's maybe different from what they're hearing or, or again, just share some of my insights and ask for people's perspectives that might be a little bit different. So I think I, I think I saw our walk back in. We actually have, hey, Candace, stop talking for a second. So we have a special guest from uh, Dayton. Candace runs the Startup Grind chapter in Dayton. So she came uh, because, yeah, give Candace a hand. So if, if anyone is, is thinking about wanting to be in, in Jeff's seat and have Candace um, interrogate you for an hour about company building and, and advisement, then uh, go say hi to Candace and she'll, you know, she'll get you signed up to go to Dayton and talk to uh, the, the gang in Dayton. Um, so why do you think that you are an entrepreneur? Why, why, why get, get into this whole company building thing given the fact that it's often a terrible existence? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm different than a lot of other people. I didn't necessarily choose this life. It kind of chose me. Um, you know, seven years ago, I worked in the financial services industry, and I was an independent consultant. And um, I watched my entire business fall apart around me in one week. And so when the economy collapsed and the recession hit, uh, all of our clients were gone. And so my dad and I had a, had a very successful business working out of, we lived in Columbus, but worked out in New York City and did a bunch of things. And so, so I didn't necessarily choose this path. I woke up one day and literally had no business and couldn't see one for the next two years. And so I had to figure out what to do real quick if I wanted to continue you know, living in that world. And so, so that was 50% of it. And, um, and I think it was a good thing in my case because it really pushed me to do something I might not have otherwise done. And so I think, you know, gentleman previously was mentioning this, the first step is often the hardest, which is to leave something that's safe. I, I didn't have that luxury. I had no safety net anymore. I had zero income coming in. And, uh, and that really helped me jump into it in a different perspective. Um, I also think at some level, I knew a lot of people that were successful in running businesses as well. Maybe not technology businesses, but I'd you know, have run, but, but you know, my aunt ran a deli, my uncle uh, was a contractor and had a building business, my cousin um, runs a you know, home building uh, company in Pennsylvania, and so I could see what they were doing, and I just felt like I, I knew that I had some trust in myself that I could actually make it work. And, and those all kind of contributed to this perfect storm of me saying, hey, this is something I want to do at this point. So there are going to be a couple of pillars to, to our conversation. One is you had a, a services firm that then became Duet Health, and, and you made the transition to product firm. You then grew and built Duet, and then, and then ultimately there was, there was an acquisition. Um, so I wanted to sort of set the stage for the, the, the conversation for folks. Um, so let's talk about the, the e-proximity you know, days, and, and you're, you're a service firm, probably to, to generate cash and to live. Um, and how did, how did you then identify the opportunity for Duet Health, and, and, and w w did you know that it was the opportunity and the business that's now become immediately, or did, did you sort of have to grow into it? Yeah. So for those that don't know, seven years ago, I co started a company called eProximity, and we were building mobile applications. Um, and, and, and really, it was a location-based marketing company. Um, and so, so it failed miserably. Like, it was beyond bad. We, we were not getting any revenue, and it just wasn't going anywhere. And so, so what we realized is that our ideas weren't that great, but we were really good at building apps for other people. And so we started building software for other people just to pay the bills. Um, and, and really things evolved from there. And so, so we did have some ideas around healthcare. We started to uh, build applications in the healthcare space. And that opened our eyes to a couple of opportunities that were coming. Um, and, and in our case, we went out to get funding and we got $325,000 worth of, 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 of capital from, uh, from investors, but we couldn't get enough other money to make it work. And so $325,000 was great. It came in a $250,000 play and then a couple of smaller 25,000, but that wasn't gonna be enough to run the business. And so 
I wanted to keep in business and I've kind of always had this philosophy, you, you know, if you're not in business, you're never going to make it work. And so, so we just kind of kept our shingle out to say, we'll build apps for other people. And, and we kept doing that and had more and more success. We leveraged those relationships we created in healthcare to do what we wanted to do. But we never, I was never good at fundraising, our idea was never fundraisable enough in Columbus, Ohio, for us to get the cash we needed to escape the services industry. So we kept building apps for other people and at the same time put all that cash into our own business. And it slowly started to evolve. And so then we had our own software. We stopped selling, building apps for people and started selling, hey, we're gonna build our own Thing and, and would go into clients aggressively and say, hey, we want to pay you to build an app for us. And we'd say, why don't you pay for this? You know, why don't you buy our software instead? And, and we just transitioned that and kind of legged it out. You know, I gave the analogy the other day to somebody. We didn't hit any home runs. We hit a bunch of singles. And so we kept getting single, single, single. And we used all that to create a, a software company along the way until we were finally in the position where we could stop building software for other people. And, and that was a scary day, but it was, a, it was an awesome day when we could turn around. And, and I remember telling our employees, we're going to stop being a, a cover band, and we're going to start singing our own songs. And, uh, and that's a scary time for anybody, but it was, it was pretty cool, and everybody was on board. So are, are, are you a decent singer? Can you, can you sing? <laughs> we did. The company is duet, and, and I did use a singing reference, but no, I'm not going to sing today. Okay, because I, I tricked Joe Anstein from Prior Off Now two months ago to sing um, as part of our, our interview. Do you want to take, take a shot at that and see if you're better than Joe? I'm good. I, I guarantee Joe's better. No, I think, Dan, you really want to hear him sing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Does every, every, <laughs> Lionel Richie? Dancing on the Stealing. Dancing on the the only thing that I do have that I would give you right now is, a, uh, is an announcer voice. Okay, do the announcer voice. And so if anybody remembers Keith, Keith Jackson, from the banks of the Olentangy. <laughs> so often... Is that, is that it? Yeah, that's, it, goes, it goes as far as I can give it. Okay, yes, and you distracted me from wanting to ask you to, keep, to, to sing, so uh, well done. Um, so you seem to... Um, now be as personally passionate about um, patient engagement as, as you are from a sort of a business perspective of making sure that you're doing it effectively as a company. Have you always sort of had that perspective around it or have you evolved into it personally where you're now pretty passionate about that aspect of life? Yeah, I mean... You know, so it's interesting. I didn't really like healthcare when we started the company. So it's kind of a, it's, it's just kind of worked out that way. Um, Anti-healthcare? I wasn't anti-healthcare. I just didn't know much about it. And it had always been something distance for me. And so we started building these products. And then I just got pissed because I looked around and I saw kind of a disconnect between, you know, patients and the rest of healthcare. And so... Uh, you know, inevitably, it just grew and grew and grew to the point where now I am, you know, experienced. I'm knowledgeable about the process. I've walked through hospitals all over this country. I know as much about doctors, about what many patients are getting educated in many situations. And so I've taken it, yes, as a personal mission to say, this is messed up. And we need to change this. We need to empower. We need to educate. We need to, you know, a better consumer patient experience all the way through. And, um, and I think inevitably, anytime you get in a situation where you're this involved and this deep in a solution and you see so many problems associated with it and you care a little bit, you get sucked in. And so, um, and, and, and it's an interesting thing. I have the opportunity to walk through lots of children's hospitals, lots of other places where people would benefit from education and they could use it to help their family or help themselves in many ways. And, um, and it does start to get to you, and you think, I can make a difference in this, and I really want to get involved in it. And so, yeah, I continue to make it uh, you know, my own personal mission. And, and, and yes, I continue to grow in ways you know, towards helping people outside of even our own business to try to fix that. But I think that's one of the cool things about working in the healthcare space, is you're not building you know, a random widget or something that has no value. You can see it firsthand. And so, you know, we did a program with Mount Carmel where we were preventing readmissions, and we were personally watching the effects right here in Columbus of people having education, having information, and preventing their readmission 
to the hospital, which means they're healthier following a heart surgery, they're living a more normal life, and that's just cool. At the end of the day, you can take that, and, uh, and again, that's something that's you know, an additional piece of value other than just trying to get rich from a company that, that you can get excited about. So the, the, there seem to be a lot of people chasing healthcare, um, a lot of startups around virtually every aspect of care and digitization um, and analytics. Um, what are going to be some of the keys for, for those companies to at least give themselves a better than 50-50 shot of making it work? Yeah, so, so the thing I see a lot of people failing in in healthcare and, and is really that they, they see a problem in healthcare, but they're not in healthcare themselves. And, and so they're saying, hey, healthcare needs this. And that fails almost every time. You have to understand the business of healthcare, how it works, why it works that way, what's happening, and, and you really have to ingrain yourself in that model. I'm not silly enough to think I was smart enough from the outside. When we formed our company, we created an advisory board of doctors, and we listened to them. And they told us exactly what our initial product should look like, and we, we continued to engage that group up until... I really thought I knew more than they did. So I felt more comfortable, but we continue to embrace them. I see tons of um, healthcare software companies or other companies that are building things, but yet they don't have physicians, they don't have nurses, they don't have people involved in the delivery of care right there as a part of what they're doing. These people are free, they're willing to help you, they will give you the advice. You gotta go to the industry experts on it. And I, and I just hear too many people on the street saying, healthcare needs this or healthcare needs that, but they haven't gone out to figure out why. So you really have to understand, you know, how, how do people get paid in healthcare? It's different. Why do they get paid that way? Where is it going? It's changing and evolving. If you don't know that route or what's going on, you're, you're in a big hole. And, and there are a lot of people going at problems in healthcare that I haven't heard of as problems. And I don't hear people talking about in individual practices or in big health systems. You have to kind of question yourself why, you know, why do you think that's a problem if they don't? It's not to say they're wrong, but you'd hopefully not have so many descending opinions towards what you're doing. But you do see a lot of that in healthcare. Whereas I might know something about financial services and how to pay you easier that Chase might not have figured out. But in healthcare, if I think of, of something like that, it just might be more complicated and, or there might be regulatory things that would impose me from doing so. And so you have a, just a culmination of quite a few things in healthcare you need to understand and have figured out before you just launch into something kind of aimlessly. It's, it, healthcare is notoriously hard to sell into. How have you guys been effective selling into it and, and acquiring the customers that you have? Yeah, so we got really lucky when we, when we started the company, you know, we called the company Duet. And so it was doctor and patient. And our model as we looked at it, again, I was rather naive to this space. I said, I think we need to be empowering doctors. I think we need to create a product that helps bring doctors and patients closer together. And it turns out there was, you know, the health record had been positioned to doctors. Doctors had just been being treated like crap. And so if you know doctors, there's a huge part of a lot of health organizations now where you have healthcare burnout where people are just sick and tired of dealing with all they have to deal with. And so our fortunate opportunity was we went in and said, we're going to build something that makes it easier for doctors. We're going to solve problems they have, and we're going to go about this in a manner to empower and, and engage their audience to solve a lot of things that people aren't talking about. In doing so, doctors became our advocates. And so the other thing that we did differently than other people is we sold directly to doctors. We went after those rogue doctors and said, we're gonna give you tools and technologies and things to make your life better. They turned around, then bought our products, and then they turned around and referred us to their friends. And so, you know, Dan had asked me a couple years ago to an event, like, what's your superpower? And I've said, doctors like me. And, and they didn't really like me, they liked what I was trying to do. And, and it is true, we leveraged those relationships. And much as the gentleman said previously, doctors started to call us and say, hey, my buddy Jim, who's over here at Ohio State, thinks your product's great. I'm over here at the Cleveland Clinic. I'd like to try your product. Could you come in and show it to me? And how much does it cost? I'll get a PO ready. And those are real situations that happen to us. And so while other people are trying really hard to cold call and do other things, we created a, a networking model for doctors that liked what we were doing that they started to come to us. 
And to this day, we have a, we have a doctor from Brigham and Women's on the homepage of our website. He's the number one Crohn's and colitis doctor on the planet, so he's one of the best gastroenterologists. We didn't pay him a cent. And he gives a beautiful two-minute pitch, a commercial thing of our product. He did that out of friendship to us. We built some programs to him. We helped some of his buddies. He liked what we were doing. We asked for his help. We created a video shoot where he could come in, and he helped us out with that. And so I think other people are fighting this system. We tried to work with the system and help it grow with us. And again, help other people have success. And it, when you do that in healthcare, every doctor knows 10 other doctors. And, and that was how we sold without really a marketing budget or without really advanced sales teams to make it work. So if you don't already have a meme that says, uh, with a picture of your face that says, doctors like me, they really, really like me, then we have to create one. <laughs> I don't want them to know that. Oh, which is probably the bad is, thing to be this saying is like here. like secret but, persuasion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, but, but yeah, I mean, I think you, 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 whenever you go into a space that's difficult to sell to, that has a lot of obstacles, you need to find champions of your product. And we found those champions in what we were doing, and we solved a problem for them. And, and they, in turn, have solved a lot of problems. So we've been in plenty of scenarios where we probably shouldn't have been able to close the deal because it's hard to sell a product. But those doctors really liked it. They really wanted it. And then when the deal closed, they called us excited. And some of them even said to us on the phone, we got it done. They didn't say, I got it done for you. They said, we got it done. And we rolled it out together. And that, that's really been the difference for us. And that's helped us scale faster and grow quicker in, in a, yeah, a very difficult sales space. It's hard to get a contract with the health system. And, and when you're small, that takes a lot of time, a lot of legal work, a lot of effort. And, and we were able to get it done by, by those relationships. So it's a great segue to, to this next question. So what problem and, and val are you solving and what value are you providing to customers and to users? Yeah, so, so we now have two products. So we started off with one simple thesis for the whole company and that's that 80% of patients leave the doctor's office and by the time they get to their car, they're not sure what the doctor told them. So when you think about the eight out of 10 people that leave and they get in their car and they might have been told they had cancer, they might have been told they're having a baby, they might have been told they broke their leg, they could have been any one of these situations, they're not sure really what's wrong with them. And then two and five, or now three and five Google searches are about health. And so the problem we solved is that you have a largely unsure population out there looking for help under what's wrong with them. And then they're coming into the doctor's office and saying, hey, I, uh, I, you know, my leg is swollen, I think I have cancer. Because I went to WebMD and it tells me if my leg is swollen and I, I, you know, I've, been, uh, I've got dry throat and something else, th that all this is wrong with me. And or I read something and something else and something's wrong. And so the uneducated patient is wasting the doctor's time, is screwing up, they're not following directions. We helped solve those pieces. And so our patient engagement wasn't about let's teach you about you know, what's wrong with you. It was a very specific let's show you a path towards how we can help make you healthier, how we can deliver information to you. And so we delivered that program and that product. And then along the way, doctors came to us and said, great, you know, we love that you're helping our patients. Could you help us? So we also need ways to communicate. We also need ways to engage. We also need ways to follow our own algorithms, our own um, processes for doing things. And so the same product that we gave to the patients, we kind of uh, re-engineered a little bit and we gave it to the doctors. Uh, so it, it really comes down to communication and healthcare is really hard. And essentially, you have a mobile workforce. They don't sit in front of a desk all day long. And you need some tool to do that. And we created apps and software, really, that is now web and mobile enabled. But, but it helps people communicate a lot more effectively around health. What we've talked about so far sort of makes it sound like it's been a, a mostly linear and easy journey. Um, everybody knows that that's never the case. So when, give us a couple of examples of trouble spots along the way and, and points where you thought about quitting and giving up on it and, and why you didn't and how you got through it. Yeah, I mean the first three years were terrible. Like you can't get around it. We had probably seven or eight months where we started the month and we didn't have enough money to pay the bills for that entire month. And so, uh, 
you know, you have all the financial troubles, right? We tried to raise money in, in Columbus, and, and six years ago, it was a much different environment. doesn't mean it's a lot easier today. We, again, we only ever raised $325,000 before we were acquired. So, so we had to figure out how to, how to you know, make dues without all of the stuff that we had. Um, and we had to figure out how to attract and retain people in a marketplace where we probably couldn't pay them the same level they could go get somewhere else. And so, you know, it is incredibly hard to the point where you probably should break. And, uh, and again, when you start the month and you look around and, and, you know, the toughest thing I think is you got to act like everything's cool even though it's not cool. And you're getting on the phone with a client and saying, hey, you should buy this product, not because we're about to go out of business, but because it's a great product. And I think that is uh, really demanding of somebody uh, in ways that you probably have never been experienced for. And so, um, you know, how did I get through it? Um, in many ways, I, I just kind of, you, you know, you talk about like, or you read about the distortion reality that Steve Jobs has or the other people have. You kind of have to put on your own distortion reality lenses and look at it and just say it's going to work out. You need to have a fallback plan. And so I had a fallback plan. I had, you know, before I started the company, I'd save money. And I'd always, you know, I moved my wife from Chicago around the time when I started the company, which was just, again, a terrible culmination of research. She shows up in Columbus for a life that I couldn't provide to her because, again, my job was gone. And so then I started a company, which was awesome for the next two and a half years. But, but you know, what we did or, or how... Sound, we, sounds like you're a real catch. Yeah, yeah. I call it the bait and switch. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, what we were able to do or what at least I was able to do through that is, is stay focused and, and remember to stay on track and to get enough validation on a regular level that you think you can do the right things. You know, I had, a, I, had a, I had a money in my savings account that I knew I wouldn't go below because I needed to pay the mortgage. And there was that month where I started and I realized I was going to go below that money that month. And I was going to hit rock bottom. And I had given up essentially that day. Um, I went to a networking event. Um, it, it helped me, you know, kind of think that there's other people and, in and, these things. And Ryan Schick was there and he lifted your spirits <laughs> and you no. could carry on. No, he wasn't there. But I mean, it's, it's a, literally, uh, it was a thing that Bing Blanquera had run and I went to it. And so, you know, I got a couple free drinks, had a little um, bit of a buzz. God love Ben. Yeah. And, uh, and then thought, well, I'll try this for another couple of weeks. And, um, and then we randomly got $25,000 of venture capital from some idiot who gave us the money. Um, and, and then, you know, the next month we closed a deal and we closed another deal. And so, so, you know, I had essentially given up and just gave myself another four weeks to do it. But you have those moments and you will continue to have those. You know, we, we could see, and anybody who knows this, you talk about the runway, we could see the end of the runway for the first three years every single time. And sometimes it was three months out, sometimes it was six months out. The way I looked at it, I was just keeping myself in the job that I wanted. So I'd say, okay, I'm going to buy myself another two or three months. I'm going to buy myself another four or five months. And, and we really never got to the end of that until we were acquired. And, um, and then we could, you know, it was somebody else's problem uh, from that point on. But, but you don't ever leave that. And, you know, I was reading a book and it, it is true. It's like, you know, starting a business is like buying a boat right? The, the, the best days are the day you buy it and the day you sell it. And, uh, and it's, it's really the case in a lot of ways in a, in a tech company like that. So is there any way that someone who's thinking about taking the, the entrepreneurial journey and starting a company, is there any way for them to sort of get prepared for the chaos and the uncertainty and the stress and the anxiety as part of it in your mind? Or is it just there's no way to prepare? You just have to get in it, live it, and then take, take it one day at a time. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a hard thing to replicate, but, but the thing I, I'd always told people, don't start a job as your second job. So, like, if you want to do something, you know, you got to jump full into it. And, and I don't know that I think that's the case now, um, but I think if you, if you have a job and you're thinking about starting another job, imagine getting home at night at 5 o'clock and then starting that other job and doing all the things you need to do from 5 to 10 or 5 to 11 o'clock. <laughs> and, and once you start to do that, you can see, start to see the insanity of what it is. Because the reality of my life was that, you know, I would get up early, I would come home, I would help, you know, eat dinner with my kids, help get them bathed into bed, 
And then I would turn on my laptop and work until the end of the day. And I did that for a long time. And so if you're already in that, if you leave a job and you come home and try to start your job and, and, and by like nine o'clock on like the third month, you don't want to do it anymore, then it's probably not going to work out because that's how taxing it is because you don't have the money to pay for the people to do all the things you'd want to do. You got to do it all yourself or you got to find people to do it and you've got to look at it. And so that, that's a way you could replicate you know, the, and also the stress. So you're gonna also ask yourself, do I really wanna be doing this? And if you don't wanna be sitting there as your second job at night at 9.30, sending out those emails, preparing the, the business plan, sending something out to a client, then you probably wouldn't wanna do it or you're not ready for the amount of uh, effort that's gonna be required once it's, it's all on you. Do you have any methodologies, routines, processes, tools that you just can't live without and that you think make you more successful? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a total psychopath. And so, so I, I, don't, I think that's a personal trait. Yeah. I don't think that's a so, process, a methodology, but, or a tool. I, I get up at 5 o'clock every day, and I run on the treadmill for 45 minutes. And then I get off the treadmill, and then I go right to work. So I'm in my office sitting there at about 6.12. There's a shower in there somewhere, right? There is a shower okay. occasionally but I live close to my office. And so, so I like to spend from 6.15 to 8 o'clock in the morning in doing creative things before nobody shows up. And so that's been a vital part of my routine. And even when I travel now, and I unfortunately travel almost every single the week of the year. And so I'll hop on a plane here tomorrow and, and then I'll come home late Friday night. I'll still, even though we have to entertain people, even though we are taking people out and I might not get home until 10 o'clock, I'm gonna get up at five, I'm gonna run on the treadmill. And, and I always said I was just trying to keep myself alive that way from the stress. But, but the running, the doing that, that creating that process helped me regulate myself every day and, and really became a huge stress reliever and helped me get myself focused for the day. And so, so what I tell everybody is I, I'm not, like if you ask me to go home at night, I couldn't ever run. I, I don't want to do that at the end of the day. But I had to find something I could do to try to be myself for a little bit. And, and so that's, that's how I regulated myself. And again, I, I now run, because I'm a psycho, with the iPad in front of me on the treadmill, and I'm returning emails, and I'm doing those things. But it, it just has helped me get a sense of myself and, and what I need to do. Um, the other thing that... How do, you how do you type and return an email while you're running on the treadmill? I can't do it when I'm sitting at a desk. It, it, you can do it. You could learn it. I could show you. It's... Uh, it's not pretty, and there's some typos occasionally, but if you're one of my employees, you've gotten those emails that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And there's the voice, there's the voice part of it. I feel like I'm, I'm not athletic and coordinated enough to pull that <laughs> off, but maybe, maybe we'll have a training session or something and yeah. I can do it. Yeah, so, I mean, but it, it really is one of those things that helped me out. And then the other part of it is even you know, now, the other process I have is I do two things. I try to do them every single week. So the first one is I interview somebody every single week even if we don't have jobs open. We'll, we'll run ads, we'll talk to people. I'll still continue to meet with them and talk with them, if even for a half hour or 45 minutes. I love the idea of new people and all the things that they can bring to the company. And, um, and, <laughs> and then the other thing that I do is I still, I, I'm fortunate enough to meet with um, doctors all over the country and, and I have started mentoring other people that are starting ideas. And so, I get excited and I get more passionate and, and find more enthusiasm when I hear what other people are doing. And so when I deviate too far away from creative people starting things, I feel like I'm losing some of my edge and I wanna, I wanna get closer to it. So let's talk about the acquisition because that's um, um, you, really the, the, the outcome that most people that are building companies are, are, are driving toward um, and that's, not necessarily should be the intent at the beginning, right? You should build a company to solve people's problems and and um, and to have that be good enough. Um, but if there's uh, an acquisition liquidity event, right, then then um, all well and good. How did that conversation initiate? Were were you pursued? Did you were you guys looking to get um, acquired by a larger larger organization? How did that go down? Yeah. So we. Uh we had put feelers out there to people that we were interested uh, and that we were looking, again, we never stopped looking for funding, although we stopped being as aggressive 
in and what you, we were doing. And you only raised $325,000. That's it. Right? Ever. That's it. That's it. And so, so people knew what we were doing. They could see what we had. And, and we had lots of conversations with people. And so, so it's funny. When you stop looking for money, money starts looking for you. It's like the total opposite effect of what you think. And, and along the way, patient engagement started to have a lot more value. It went from being patient education to patient engagement. And now we're seeing, seeing and have more things. So the, the industry evolved to probably where we needed to be. And so we had been um, invested in, acquired by a company called Baird Capital Partners. They're a, they're a significant player in the space. Um, and, and we found those partners, and they went and found people across the country. So we needed help in fundraising. And uh, what we found is a group that could help us find people that were looking for this. We had identified the fact that we probably wouldn't be uh, invested in by a traditional VC, and so I think that's the other thing is, so, so you said it exactly right. Some people's exit strategy, build a company, if you love it, keep building it, and that's awesome. Ours was going to be some kind of an exit. And so, so we knew it was either, you know, one of three things. Either VC would invest in us, private equity would buy us, or we would, get, we would sell ourselves to um, some kind of strategic buyer. And so uh, VCs didn't look good. PE was already involved. And so then we started to say, who are the strategic acquirers that could buy us? And, um, and so we had these folks helping us out, and we found some companies across the country. Uh, it took about 18 months. We did road shows and just traveled like nuts, uh, meeting with all these people. We were fortunate enough. We ended up with three offers. And so there was the really bad one that really isn't an offer that's kind of your low ball. And then there were two that were pretty good. And so we were in a luxury position where we could choose the one that we got the most excited about and, and could provide us a path to what's happened. But we... we what we found was a company that was a physician-led organization, so they understood our product. Again, doctors love me. A doctor bought my company. Um, it's a consistent theme. But, but they knew what we were doing. They knew the value. We didn't have to work as hard to show it to them. Um, they were in acquisitions. And so when you look across the country and you have the like people, that you, we found people that were ready to acquire things. And, and they had the same vision we did and wanted to help us accelerate what we were doing and make it bigger and, and better in a big way as a partner. And so it, it, it worked out, but it took us about 18 months to really, you know, travel the country, find those people, and find a group that was ready to, to make that move. And, that, and that's been how long since that happened? That happened was, in, like, March of 2016, right? Uh, yeah, it was, May? It, no, it was May. It was literally one year ago, four days ago. So, so far, so good? How's the experience been being a part of the, the larger company? They're not here, and it's, they will. It's pretty good. No, it's, no one uh, will ever see this video. It, it's funny. There. I work harder now than I did, which I didn't even think was possible. I didn't think there was another level uh, to go to, but but it is good. We're now scaling the product across the country, and so um, so we've got lots more business and lots more things. The challenges are totally different. Um, you know, there's lots of things that are worse. Quite frankly, I never aspired to work for a nine thousand person company, and so now all the I forgot about all the political crap you got to deal with and and working for a big company and i you know again i have no filter i remind them on a regular basis that this probably isn't what i signed up for um but but you know we're you have a lot of opportunities you never had and and it's released a lot of stress i went on the first vacation on spring break my wife actually laughed she's like that's the first time you didn't return a phone call or get on a conference call and so I hadn't gone on a, on a vacation in five years where I hadn't done some kind of a webinar or conference call or something while I was on vacation. And so when it's somebody else's problem, that's pretty great. And so I spent 10 days relaxing. So what, so what does the future look like? Where do you go with, with the business now inside of Metadata? And, and how do you sort of think about where your products and duet within Metadata is, is a play for them? Yeah, so fortunately, again, on, on our, as we were working out the acquisition, we created a roadmap of what we might do, what it might look like, how they might help us. And so now we're just kind of executing on that vision. It took, again, it's a big company. Now it took six or eight months to get all those things lined up. And so the last part of last year was just getting all that, working through all the crap of figuring out who does what and how and, and getting frustrated and, and trying to get a game plan together that actually made sense. And then in January, February, we started to roll that out. And so that's part of my, you know, I, I looked at it the other day, like, you know, Marriott loves me. I just hit, you know, my 75th day in a hotel last week uh, this year. And so, so it's been a lot of travel, but that's going around the country and, and to not always the best places, right? So next 
I'm sure these are great places. That's a terrible thing to say. So, so next week I go to fly into Chattanooga on Tuesday. I'm in Knoxville on Wednesday, and then I'm in Charlotte on Thursday. And we're meeting with six different potential, you know, clients through that trip, trying to lock a couple of those down. And and I do those trips trying to help educate our salespeople and other people on what we're doing, so that they can grow it. So where do you find guidance and inspiration? Who do you look to? Who do you talk to? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still, I mean, even today, I, I, um, I love, you know, it's funny, like I was talking to this guy in Chattanooga the other night planning this thing, and I really had, I didn't want to be there at all. But he was this really forward-thinking doctor, super passionate. He's a pediatric cardiologist. He was telling me how he had a program already built and how he's going to use our software around educating families in Tennessee and all this um, great stuff he wanted to do. And that was awesome. I mean, I literally changed my schedule, um, doing all kinds of different things because that guy uh, lit me up. I and mean, it, was, it was like 6.30 at night, and I was literally getting on the phone to tell him I'm not coming because I don't want to do that. But he was as excited about it as anybody I had. And so I have the luxury of dealing with a lot of people who are super enthusiastic and probably have overzealous dreams of how they could use our things, but they've, they've had some kind of shared enthusiasm. So I, I try to tell everybody, you got to find somebody who has a shared enthusiasm for what you're doing. Because at the end of the day, when you're exhausted, you just want to say no and tell them to go away. If they're excited about it, you're like, hey, that's, maybe I should be that excited too. And, um, and then the other thing I do is I read a lot of books because I spend a lot of time on planes. And so, I mean, this year I've read Ben Franklin. A uh, book about him and all the things that he started and failed in, and read Elon Musk and and you know uh, if you've read you know there's uh, the Nike book on starting Nike and and just the second where you think hey it was easy for Nike I mean they were about to fail they were literally out of cash when they IPO'd and so you know other people have been through this so I always find like there's there's strength in numbers and so if everybody's miserable I want to go be around those miserable people that are trying to do things because they'll make me happier because they're all miserable together if you just seek out people who are more miserable than you are you right. might be the happiest right. amongst that group it's a race yeah no if if, uh, if you haven't read Phil Knight's book Shoe Dog do it it's um, it's a great read um, and it's and it not that anybody should have be maintaining this myth, um, but it's just another example of this shit is not easy. Yeah. Um, and anybody who thinks that it is is just flat out wrong because if you look at all the examples, um, it's painfully hard. Um, so you've built you you've built a, a company in Columbus um, that got not a lot of funding, 325000 Now, I notice some, some people, 325000 sounds like a, a ton of money, but in terms of company building, it's not that much money, ultimately. Um, what would you, in a tough space in healthcare, so what advice would you give to someone who's just starting the journey now and they're, they're newly figuring this all out about doing it in Columbus and some keys of how could they can sort of get their head right around it? Yeah, I mean, I think, so there's a number of things like, you know, and, and again, I don't have a filter that I probably should. Columbus is, is not a good thing for some things and it's a really good thing for other things. And, and you just have to accept and acknowledge that and move on, right? And so um, the, the beauty of Columbus is everybody's accessible. Right, I, I loved what that guy was saying, but like, if you wanted to meet Les Wexner, there's probably there's probably only two degrees of separation, you know, between you and some friend and somebody like that. And so, Columbus has an accessibility to people that you're not going to find anywhere else. And I think that is a unique trait. Um, there's also a lot of smart people in Columbus, and so I always say, not not you, Dan. And so I always say, find other like-minded people, and again, find people you can you can gel with that that have these kind of shared visions. And, um, and there's a lot of enthusiastic people around this town that, you know, that can make that work. And, and so what I tell everybody is, you know, even if I think it's a bad idea, be ready for 100 people to tell you it's a bad idea. And, you know, more to tell you it's going to fail. Um, do your homework. Do as much due diligence as you can as to why. And then I always tell people have a really healthy dose of paranoia. Right? So if you're paranoid every day, constantly wondering, how's this going to fail? How's it not going to work out? You, you're hopefully doing enough legwork and, and putting enough sweat equity in to make it work. Um, but I think the economics around Columbus are also amazing as well. I think, you know, we're in a pretty cool space right now that's only like 19 bucks 
you know, a month per square foot. And so it's, it's like, you know, unattainable. And I think when people look at it from the outside, they don't realize how cheap uh, a lot of things are to do in Columbus, how accessible a lot of things are. And while you might not have other things here, there's, it's an easy plane ride to go get it somewhere else. And so we spent a lot of time, one of our partners early on was the Harvard Medical School. We picked up the phone and called them, somehow convinced or connived a couple of people to partner with us and grew some great relationships. We flew to Boston all the time. You can fly direct on Southwest. It's a $215 plane ticket if you buy it in advance. And so you can get in, you can stay at a you know, Marriott somewhere out of town, rent a car, you can get out on a really cheap way to get in there. And I think... Um, you know, if you can figure out, I mean, I love your shirt bootstrap, but, you know, if you can figure out how to stretch a dollar a long way, you can do it in Columbus and you can have a lot of success. How does someone have healthy paranoia? <laughs> because I think that's a really difficult challenge for a lot of, a lot of founders, right? Is it, 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 it's difficult to balance, I want to be paranoid and I want to have a sense of urgency and I want to be aggressive and I want to be passionate about this thing. But then you have to balance that, right, with with just sound business principles and executing well and being becoming a good operator, right? And sometimes those are, are incongruent. Yeah. Well, I try to translate my healthy paranoia, uh, which is probably unhealthy, but into, into action, right? And so, uh, you know, my staff thinks it's pretty funny. I try to go into every meeting with the whole meeting envisioned in my head of how it's going to go. So we have a meeting tomorrow morning with a client. It's a huge meeting. Um, I've already essentially role-played the entire meeting in my head to know what are they going to say, what are our objections, what slides do we need, what information is there, and how do we get ourselves all together so that when we go in there, there's not a question that we haven't prepared for or there's not information we're not able to provide to them so that we can walk out of that with what we need that day. And so in my world, you know, paranoia translates into hard work, preparation and all the things that I need to do so that at the end of the day I can sleep easy because I do sleep easy because I know I did every possible thing I could do to try to win that day and be successful and so mine's just again I, I it's turned into uh, trying to outwork somebody I knew I wasn't smarter than other people but I knew I could out hustle them and out prepare them and once we got in that situation it would work and so so paranoia has turned into me to be preparation and, and again, diligence, so that when we walk in there, I know what's going to happen. Yeah, cool. Does anybody have a question for um, for Jeff? Otherwise, you know, we'll just we'll just stop and drink beer. That's okay too. Uh, Ryan, is that why you moved? Is that why you moved up here? Oh, well, questions come at the end, not in the middle. So, uh, Jeff, you touched on something that I've heard three times today, and that is been the, uh, the brain on fire syndrome when you wake up you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning as an entrepreneur. The thing that everybody seems to be puzzling themselves about is how do you either assuage that anxiety or how do you deal with it? Just curious, as you've taken Duet, how have you taken those 2 a.m. freak out wake-ups and how have you channeled those into your good? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, so I had a lot of repressed anger. <laughs> It's not repressed, as you can tell. After we sold the company, I started writing a book, and it was like my, it wasn't really for anybody else, it was just for myself to help me unleash some of these feelings. And I felt really good when I was done, and, and I had like 400 pages written of, of kind of musings around it. But um, if you sold that book and anybody bought it, you'd probably have to have some liability insurance for the right. harm they might do to themselves. Right. Well, I did give it to a friend, and, and she's actually, she was a producer for Oprah, and I sent her the thing, and I was like, you're really smart, what do you think? And she's like, this is depressing. <laughs> she's like, are you trying to inspire people to start companies, or basically make them not want to? And so, I mean, I, I think, you know, to answer your question specifically, you have to almost channel that anger, again, I've, I've channeled it all into energy to work harder. And so, I've, I've really never let go of that idea that, and, and, you know, it's funny, you know, it's kind of like Billy Bean, right? If you've ever read Moneyball, like he turned down the Boston job to keep working in the dregs. Why? Because, because he, he liked the, the challenges that were in front of him. And so, so we've never really let go of that underdog role. And I was in a big meeting earlier today, and someone was like, why are you still worried about that? And I was like, because I can't let go of that. 
I have a hard time now. I, I was looking at an employee the other day, and we were sending him to a, a conference. We're sending him to WWDC, right? So, so we get to send people out to the big Apple conference. And I was, like, questioning how much money he was going to spend on the plane ticket. And he's like, it's to San Francisco in the summer. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about it. And, and then I had to remind myself it's not my money anymore. But then I still made him buy the cheaper ticket. But, but I think you have to really continually um, accept that challenge. And, you, and, and again, I, I, I never woke up in the middle of the night. Because I was exhausted, and there's no way it was going to happen. But, but I would work as hard as I possibly could. And then at the end of the day, no, I thought I did the right thing. And I did the best I could. And, and you know, if you do that, and then you still lose, then that's okay. Jeff, do you have any advice for the venture capitalists? The venture capitalists? In what, in what way? Spend money? To, I don't know, Columbus companies, you jerks. Right. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, what, I mean, seriously, like, what should they be doing that they're not doing? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the tough thing is uh, there's still, like, so anybody who's trying to raise money knows there's still not a lot of money hanging around, right? And so everybody talks about how much better the scene is. I was glad the guy was talking about, you know, uh, some of the challenges here previously. And so, so I think what the VC market is going to have to do, I, I probably wouldn't say it's their problem. And, and again, that's because me, I accept all my problems myself. I think if you want to go raise money, you're going to probably have to hop on an airplane to do it. Right? So there's probably money in Columbus. You can talk to those people. Um, but I read a book somewhere, and it, you know, it was like you need to talk to like 80 people before you can get money. And I think that's probably right. Like I've, I've probably talked to 100, and I've gotten a couple of people to write us some checks. And so, so what needs to happen is people, people invest in what they know. And we don't have tons of people that are big investors in Columbus that know about stuff and in specific areas that we're trying to build them in now. I mean, you know, and so, so you're going to have to go find those people that know and appreciate and like what you have and, and really pitch the crap out of them about what you're doing. And so I think what the VC community could do is get smarter about certain things and then tell people what they invest in and what they don't. I mean, the big problem I had with a bunch of people in Columbus is they said, oh, we like what you're doing. And I'd look at them and say, okay, are you going to write us a check or not? No. Okay, well, so then you don't like it. Give me an honest answer. You know, be honest. What the VCs in Columbus could do, that somebody in Boston looked at me across the table, it was like 35 minutes in. He's like, you can stop. Well, like the doctors, they really, really liked you. <laughs> they just didn't like the business. Well, and again, so, so this guy, so I'm literally sitting there on the, on the Charles River on like the 80th floor or whatever it was, and this guy looks at me and he's like, just stop. We're not going to write a check for this. I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, no, it's great. He's like, it's just too small. We don't write checks that small. He's like, eight million is the lowest I'm going to go. And he's like, let me give you the name of two other people to call who write smaller checks. He writes the name on him on the back of his business card and hands it to me. And he's like, call me back when you can actually spend $8 million valuably. That was good. I mean, he introduced, so he did like three things there that were helpful. One, he didn't waste my time. And two, he was just dead honest. He didn't act like he you know, was going to do anything. And three, he introduced me to some people that actually could position that offer. I think what I see from people in Columbus and a lot of VCs is they don't write enough checks and, and so they should just tell you, here are the checks I write, and here's how I write them, and here's what I'm interested in. A lot of VCs want to hear about everything, and so it would be better if they were just honest with people and just said, this is cool, but I'm never going to give you any money. Okay, great. Let's just all know where we're at and be on the same page. With, again, I don't have a filter that I probably should have, but erase everything I just said. Um, we've, got, we've got it recorded for posterity purposes. Mike? It depends on the person. Like, you know, our investors, uh, so one of them was Ohio Health. So without our money, they didn't carry their way. So they weren't going to go under. But if they were a person, and we did have a couple of people, I just told them flat out, we're out of money. We're on fumes. And they were like, no, I invested in it. It might come in, it might go. And so you need to, so for investors, I feel like you need to be dead honest with them, and they need to know exactly where you're sitting. If they are good investors... 
they will find other people and help you get money. That's the other problem I, I have with the investment community in Columbus, Ohio. They write you a check and then say good luck. If they actually wanted to help you, they'd pick up the phone and call their rich people and find more money. Right? If, if they actually cared about their investment that much. And so, so I've always treated the investors dead honest about what we could do and where we stood because they're owners of the business just like I am at that point. And they're, they're obligated. But the investors that we had were like, well, that makes sense. And you know, one of them, we've given him his money back five times, ten times over. And I don't even think he knew when we gave it back to him. So it wasn't a lot of money to him. And the other two, it, you know, kind of would have hurt, but they were okay. So we didn't take money from, you know, people that really needed it much in that sense. But, but again, if you have an investor, and I've seen this now, and I'm working with a couple of people, and they're not picking up the phone and helping lobby you to get more business or to get more money or to help you grow, then I just don't think they're a good partner. And, um, and somebody told me that early on, and I hadn't necessarily seen it, but, but I've seen it now. And, and when that happens, that's pretty cool. And so, and, and I just think that's an obligation. So if you're ever going to take money from somebody, you, you know, you're in business with them, right? At that point, they own a part of the company. They're, you know, big boy, they sh girl, they should get it with you. And, and you need to be honest with them and they need to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. That's just my opinion. I don't think it's any different, right? I mean, I never thought it would sell for millions. I mean, I, I, you know, we were just trying to have a job for a couple of weeks. And so, um, I, you know, I just have, there's just one, it's like I said, I'm a psychopath. Like, I, there's just one way I do things, and it's just kind of committed. But, I, I mean, I think everybody's going about it. I would go about it like you think it's going to be Walmart, right? Like, you think it's going to be the next big thing and treat it like that. Because the more, uh, the, the people can see through you. And so the more passion you feel, the more excitement you feel, whether it's a coffee shop on the corner or something else. I mean, I always think I feel really lucky. My aunt ran a deli in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And, um, and she ran that thing with a passion. You would have thought she was running the next, you know, big thing in delis. And gonna, but she was excited about it. Everybody was excited. I mean, I think they probably sold the same kind of sandwich as everybody else, but people came in and fed off of her enthusiasm. And so I watched her every day. I worked with her over the summers, and, and I just saw that, and that was the kind of passion I brought to what I was doing. And so, so I don't think it's any different. I'd approach it like you're going to be the next big thing and, and put that kind of heart and commitment into it. And I don't think there's, again, I mean, I think that's an awesome goal. And so just making yourself happy and being cool with what you've done and being happy at the end of the day, is, that's a huge win right there. And if you can find that, then you're good. So we've learned a few things. Um, doctors really, really like you. You've got some now not um, oppressed, visible anger that's now in a book form that we can all purchase at some point, um, and that you're Marriott's favorite customer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the book, and so I can't use this name, but I actually might publish it. So I wanted to call it, and this will tell you how I felt about it, tech investors are like Bond villains. And so that was actually the, t but somebody actually already used that. I mean, that's how there's other people. In no the world. shit. Yeah, they had a whole. There was a whole, because once you do meet really rich tech investors, they are kind of like the weird Bond villains. Like they're stroking a cat in the corner and like just very odd people. Like I've had a lot of very, very useless interactions with people that I'm like, you're the ickiest person on the planet. So it's not going to be called that. But there is a chapter of the book I've affectionately called tech investors are like Bond villains. What, what's the weirdest investor interaction that you've ever had? No names. Yeah, so, so there was a company in Connecticut that was about to buy us um, that I always thought was creepy, but I kind of liked their money, and they were, they were a big thing. And so, um, so I go to dinner with this guy, and then he comes back, and we go back to his house to keep talking, and he's got this, this horse farm mansion in Connecticut. I mean, it's just, it was, it's still probably the biggest house I've ever been in my life. And, um, and so then we go down to his basement and we're wow, having... Wow, this, 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 this is getting creepy. Yeah, it's getting creepy. So it, but he's got a basement bar that's like the nicest bar you've ever been to. And so we're down there and then it's like nine o'clock and we're talking about business at this point, so it wasn't so creepy. Do the lights start to dim? He did, the lights were dim. It's nice. It was nice. And uh, so... So then it's like 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night, and I'm thinking, I'm done. I'm going to go back to my hotel room. And this, this psycho looks at me, and he's like, hey, let's do a webinar with my salespeople. I'm like, 
where are they? And he's like, well, he's like, I'll call them. I'll wake them up. I'm going to send a couple text messages. And I was like, what? And so then, so then he texts a bunch of his salespeople, and he gets like six people who somehow return his text. And so we go into his theater room, and then he hooks up my laptop, and I'm doing a webinar at 10.30, 10.45 at night with his salespeople about across what? the country. About our product and whether he thought they could go sell it. And he wanted their feedback as to the viability of it. And so he was just excited and, and, and again, like had no sense of time or purpose. And so I, we wrapped up that at 11.30 at night. So finally 11.30, he's like, okay, guys, great. Thanks for the feedback. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's, this guy's nuts. And so, so that, was, that was odd, doing a, a, a webinar investor presentation after like seven drinks in a guy's horse farm basement theater room. He didn't, he didn't make you do the webinar in your underwear or anything? No. Okay. No. No, everything, everything was fine that, that day, the next day. But then he didn't even invest in us, and he was another guy who, I, and quite frankly, I wasn't going to take his money after that. It was just so odd and, and a unique situation. But he, you know, uh, six months later, they got $50 million from Goldman. And so, I mean, the, the, and he didn't clearly need it. But, but there's a lot of those people running around out there, and, and they're super odd, and, uh, and I wish no one have to interact with them. So, there, so you do have a line. There is, there is, there is a level of creepy that if even there, if there's money attached to it, you won't, you won't go past that creep line. There, there, <laughs> I do have, I do have a couple of morals that I've kept through life. Okay, yeah. that's good. That's probably a good note to end on. That you yeah, have a couple good. of morals that you've maintained through this process. That's right. Um, leave with that. Yeah, folks, help me thank Jeff for coming and chatting with us tonight. Thanks for listening to this Startup Brian Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding. Keep grinding.